Although we as a church firmly, strongly believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, although we believe that all of the Bible is truly and properly inspired by God. As I've said to you before, some sections of the Bible do seem to possess a special character of their own, don't they? So, all Scripture is breathed out by God, but some sections of the Bible are so intriguing that I think they have the, the capacity and the ability to grab us and very quickly to draw us in some sections of the Bible. Well, surely that is the case with this portion of Scripture that we come to this morning. So today at St. Peter's, we come to what is an, in many ways a unique portion of God's Word. This is uh, today in Luke chapter 2. So it's a section of Scripture that is only actually recorded by Luke. And it is a section of Scripture that is the only record we have of Jesus' life at all between his infancy and his ministry much later on. Isn't that something? So these verses, the only information, the only record, the only account that we have of Jesus, let's say, between the ages of 3 and 30. This is it. This is all, this is all we have. But let's get it right. This, this section of Scripture is not just intriguing because of what it tells us about Jesus' life. So it's not just fascinating for us because it, oh, it sheds light on what Jesus was like as a youth. It's not just that. This is fascinating because of what we learn here about the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here today, this morning, we learn in these verses much about Jesus' self-understanding. We learn in Luke chapter 2 a lot about just who it was that Jesus, aged but 12 years old, knew himself to be. So, no big idea for the sermon. We're not going to start like that. And no big grand uh, opening illustration this morning because it's just so intriguing, uh, a portion of Scripture. Why don't we just get right to it and right into this uh, section of God's Word? So, if you have a copy of the Bible, great, wonderful, get there. Look with me to Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 40. And let's think, first of all, about Jesus' development. We're going to have to walk very carefully. But let's think about, first of all, Jesus' development. You with me? Jesus' development. Okay, when we've talked to the students, or at least Esther did, when I was a student a long time ago, one day I decided that the flat that I was staying in, it needed to be a little bit more homely or a bit welcoming. You know what student accommodation can be like? It can be just a little bit plain or functional. <laughs> and I decided one day that the, the place that I was staying in with my friends needed to be spruced up a little bit. So what did I do? I, uh, I went down to the local charity shop, just a few doors down, and I returned in my wisdom with two almost identical vases. Uh, yep, you can picture that if you want. Me walking up the street with two almost identical vases, and they were the cheapest things that are known to man. 
the lightest vases. You hardly knew you were carrying them. And in my wisdom, came back in and decided what I would do is place these either side of a small collection of books I had on my bookshelf. Okay, so you've got the picture. There's the two vases, almost identical. And I, either side of the books, and I took a step back and thought, I am Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. You know, like, this is, this is interior design, top-notch interior design. But you know this morning exactly what happened later that evening, don't you? So there's, there's me in my bed, having a sleep, sound asleep, when all of a sudden, crash. Why? Because obviously the books moved and these two incredibly light vases, or at least one of them, falls and smashes on the floor. Okay? Now, you're wondering, what on earth (laughs) is he talking about? Well, maybe you won't wonder. If you look at what you've got in front of you in the Bible, you have, (coughs) excuse me, not either side of a bookshelf, but either side of this text, do you notice that you have two almost identical phrases, vases, but they are sturdy. And look with me, you'll see, first of all, in verse 40, look at verse 40, for the first vase, if you like, but you'll notice, look at, pay attention to the language. Jesus, look at this, he grew, do you see? What does he become? strong. What is he filled with? Wisdom. And then the favor of God was upon him. Everyone, we've got that. Look at the other side of the text in verse 52. What do you see? Jesus increased in what? Wow, same. Wisdom. So he's growing. And then in in stature also. And then how is it closed off? In, In favor with God. So do you see what you've got here? You've got two sitting either side Of what we have, we've got two almost identical phrases, don't we? What are they both doing? They're both, they're highlighting, emphasizing Jesus developing, Jesus growing. Now, okay, these are summary statements. We we know that. We can see that they're summary statements, can't we? But I do think it's worth us pausing on at least two elements of what we're told there in Luke's gospel. They're fascinating. Surely they are. First is the easier of the two, because you and I have to think about Jesus' physical development. Just will you walk with me on that for a second? His physical development? Isn't it something to consider that the Lord of glory, the Son of God, grew and grew up? Isn't that something? Because all of us in the room, we're, we're, we, yeah, we're, we're good with the baby Jesus, aren't we? Like, okay, you know, Jesus in swaddling cloths, in a manger, in Bethlehem. We all get it. But isn't it something to, to ponder and consider? Yes, that's fine. But Jesus grew up. So that the Son of God learned to eat solid food. The Son of God learned how to crawl. (laughs) And he learned how to stand. And he learned how to walk. And the, the very Son of God incarnate, he probably got a little bit tired of the phrases that children of a certain age 
hear all the time, you know the sort of phrases, don't you? You know, oh, you're stretching. <laughs> oh, you'll be as tall as your mum and your dad before long. Oh, what, what are they put in? They're putting fertilizer in your shoes. But, but you see the idea, don't you? The, the Son of God himself, the, this, the reality of the incarnation is that he, he grew up, he grew taller. The mighty one of Israel, his muscles developed. Now that's something, but that's the easier of the two things. Because then you and I have to think about Jesus intellectual development. Now, how can we do that? I mean, really, Christian friends, how can you and I talk in any way accurately and biblically about the Son of God growing in wisdom or knowledge? Can we do that? Well, I think it all boils down to uh, our understanding, or you and I reckoning with Jesus' human nature. Are you going to stick with me here? What do we know? We know Jesus, one person with two natures, so a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. I think we all understand that, don't we? We all reckon with that. But, but think about that human nature for a moment. What did that mean? That means, of course, we all know that Jesus had a, a fully human body. We know that, don't we? The problems begin to start when we realize that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, also had a fully human mind. Now, are you still with me? A fully human mind. What does that mean? And the, the reality of the incarnation is thus. That the God who knows all things that in the incarnation he condescended to take to himself a human mind with all of its limitations. Isn't this something? Now, what did that mean? Come on. What did that mean? A human mind with all of its limitations. What does this mean for Jesus? What does it mean for his life? What does it mean for his ministry? I want you to think about it like this. That though there were, of course, times in Jesus' ministry where he displayed supernatural knowledge. Everyone in the room can think of examples, can we? We can, can't we? Times where, where Jesus displays supernatural knowledge and, and he received special insight from the Holy Spirit. Where, where does your mind go for examples of that? Come on, Nathaniel, Jesus knew about him under the fig tree. What about what he knows about the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well? Yes? What about the fact that Jesus knew the Pharisees' thinking. Now, though there were times where Jesus displayed supernatural knowledge, what we have to understand is that that was, that was not the, the norm. Now, you, you listen to this phrase, see if it helps you. I appreciate that in his ministry, what Jesus did was he submitted the exercise of his full knowledge over to the will of his father. Does that help you? He submitted the use of his omniscience over to, to, to his father. You're still here. You can see him try to be careful, walk through it slowly, because it's so deep, isn't it? It's so difficult for us to understand. 
but, but although, yes, Jesus drew on his divine knowledge and he received special revelation from the Holy Spirit, in the main, that's not what happened. In the main, in the incarnation, in his ministry, in the main, he submitted that, that full knowledge, that omniscience. He submitted it over to his Father. Isn't this something? To think that Jesus took to himself a human mind with limitations. Isn't it marvelous to think that as a child, he really did grow? He developed and matured, and crucially, he did all of that without what? Without any sin. He learned <laughs> perfectly. He learned without laziness. Now, does your head hurt? <laughs> My head hurts a little bit. But I don't think that we can use that, or I don't think we should use that as an excuse not to wrestle with, with some of these deep things. And indeed, as you sit there this morning, and as you contemplate the reality of his human mind, do you not see that, that what we've said just now, do, do you not see that it brings to you this morning at least a couple of practical implications or applications? First of all, should what we've seen there, should it not draw out Gratitude from us as a church and the people of God. Don't, don't you think we should be thankful? I mean, think about what God has been willing to do for, for you. That God would take full human nature so that he could save you from his sin. What does the Son of God mean? The eternal Son of God, who in eternity knew everything full, complete wisdom and knowledge, he has been willing to embrace limitations to that knowledge, to that understanding, and all because he loves you. All because he knew he had to do that if he was to secure your salvation. I think we should run to Jesus in thankfulness. Then the second implication, should this not also draw from you prayer? Because I'm asking you, Christian friend, who is it that stands in heaven as your mediator? Think about the, the human mind and what Christ has known. There, representing you, is someone who understands the limitations to our understanding. We really have a sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Isn't it marvelous? I think as we look at these things, we wonder. But I think these two vases, sturdy vases, at either side of these, this text, I think it should bring forth praise. We see Jesus' development. Second of all, though, we see, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus' delight, as delight, because it's all very well uh, for you and I to think about what sits either side of the text that we're looking at today. That's fine. To, that, that's great. But what about the actual section of Scripture itself? Okay, so what, what is the, the, the situation that we're looking at th this morning here? Well, most of you were present last week in the church. Uh, you, you will hopefully remember that for a moment we thought about Mary and Joseph and we thought about them as examples of parenting. 
Can we recall that? Examples of godly parenting. Examples of godliness. I think that's, that's, that Luke doubles down on that a little bit in this portion of Scripture. And because in verse 41, we learn not just that uh, the travel up from Nazareth to Jerusalem, about 80 miles, they're going around Samaria. They don't just do that to go up for one of these three feasts that were part of the Jewish calendar. In verse 41, we learn that that was part of their annual routine. They did this every, every time. So Luke's double, doubling down, showing us the godliness here. But I, uh, I want to ask you just the simplest question, <laughs> which nobody can get wrong, I don't think. The, the question is, who traveled in this text? Who traveled from Nazareth and up to the feast in Jerusalem? Or, I'll make it even simpler, was it just Joseph? No. Who else went? Mary went. That's not as insignificant as you might think. Um, the law, the Old Testament law, did not demand that the, the mother, the wife, had to go up uh, for these feasts up to Jerusalem. But Mary's there. She, a godly woman, she wants to be there. Who else goes? Obviously, Jesus goes. But what, interesting to, to, to read what it says. So now listen carefully. He went aged 12, and then it's emphasized age 12 according to custom. He went aged 12 according to custom. See, if you and I are going to get this text, the scripture correct in our minds, we have to have an understanding of Jewish thinking of the time. Believe it or not, we do. So for the Jews, the age of 13 was and is absolutely critical in a person's life, the age of 13. So what's special to the Jew about the age of 13? It's the time when a person is viewed as becoming responsible before God. Everyone got it? You hit 13, you're responsible, responsible, responsible for your sin. And it was expected that the year before that, when a person was 12, that what would happen is that the dad would take the boy up to Jerusalem. Why would they go up the year before? To, sh- to be shown the ropes. So if you're 12, the year before, you know, the bar mitzvah, you become a son of the Torah, that's 13. The year before that, let's go up to Jerusalem. Let me show you about the feast. Let me show you the ropes, get you familiar with the temple. Everyone with me? Yes. Well, we can see, can't we, in the text, that's what's going on. We can see that. Joseph takes Jesus up. We can't get it wrong, though. Like, we, we can see, everyone in here can see that in Jesus' instance, there's a problem in the text at the end of the week, isn't there? <laughs> this is a text that, that all the parents in the room, we read this, and we're honest, we freak out a little bit, don't we? Even if, as a parent, you've lost sight of your child in Riverside Tesco's for a split second, even if that's happened for a split second, then you read Luke chapter 2 and your heart misses a beat, doesn't it? But I don't want us to get it wrong because this is not home alone. It isn't. This is not Macaulay Culkin and neglectful parents. 
The Bible doesn't emphasize that, nor I don't think we should. And if we actually understand what's going on, I think we'll see what happened here is really understandable. See, it, like, it wasn't the case. I've emphasized who went up to Jerusalem, haven't I? It wasn't the case that Mary and Joseph and Jesus went up as a family by themselves. That's not how these things worked. I think we understand that, don't we? We know that at feast times, it was the case that huge amounts of people traveled up together in this very, very long, what we call it, a caravan, I suppose is the right word, isn't it? And they would all go up. And I think if we look at it, we can see what happened because the norm was that the mums and the, the women would travel at the front of this caravan with the young kids and the, the dads would be at the back and they'd be all traveling up together to Jerusalem. So can you see what might have happened? You know, uh, Mary might be thinking, oh, well, where's, 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 where is he? <laughs> oh, he's, he's maybe up the back with his dad, right? Or you've maybe got Joseph and he's maybe not paying that much of attention. As dads can sometimes be guilty of as well. And he's maybe, well, where is he? Where is he? Or maybe, maybe he's up the front with Mary. Or maybe they're both walking together. Maybe they're thinking, he's with his friends, right? Or he's with a, a relative. But you see, don't you? Which, regardless which way it is, a full day into that journey, the penny drops. And Mary's there and she's saying, He's not here. Where's my wee boy? And, and you can imagine, can you? The terror and, and in absolute dismay and fear, they realize he's not here. And they, they turn around and, and, and they, head, they head back. Now, as they go into Jerusalem, before too long, they, they find him. But I think it's the scene. They search for him around the city and they find him. And it's the scene that awaits them that we are supposed to focus on in detail. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me this morning. So I, we're going to put up verses 46 and 47. I'm going to ask you just to read it with me. 46 and 46. So you get it. They, they walk in. They eventually get into this temple. They find it. And it's the scene. Notice the details of the scene with me. Let's do it together. 46, 47. Just the panic that must have been there. And then after three days, they found him. So I think the three days, uh, I think it's inclusive. Do you follow? So it's not three days of looking around Jerusalem. It's three days since they set off. A day out, a day back. Did you see? And the third day. So after three days, they found him. In the temple. Now, what's the scene? Sitting among the teachers. um, Listening to them. So at feast times, they would have invited rabbis from different places to come to Jerusalem. So he's sitting amongst these men, listening to them. What's he doing? Asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his, his answers. Do, do you like the scene? Isn't that an amazing scene, isn't it? But I think if we're going to just now, right now, picture it correctly, I, I think we have to understand something of the sort of educational methods of the time. So we've got teachers in the room, and we've got students, and we've got lecturers. Um, I wonder what you think about this, that the, 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 a major method of teaching in the first century world was through disputation. 
and debate and discussion. That's what very often happens in the, the Old Testament, or the, the, rather in the, the temple here, through debate. So can you, can you picture the scene? Yes! Like Jesus is, is just, just giving extended answers. You know, and he's showing incredible insight. But what is the other side of the coin? Jesus is demonstrating this incredible appetite to learn, isn't he? He's sitting there at the feet of of these rabbis. And what's Jesus doing? He is hanging on every word. Isn't he? And he's, he's listening and he's inquiring from, about the scriptures and he's, and he's asking questions. He's desperate to discover more about his heavenly father. Here Jesus is desperate to know more about this plan of redemption, this plan of salvation. What do you see when you look into Luke chapter 2? You see a 12-year-old boy and you see him absolutely delighting to learn of his God and to learn from his words. And because of the nature of this text, I wonder if you'll allow me to do this. I wonder if you'll allow me to speak to uh, an often overlooked demographic in the life of a church. You'll let me speak to the teenagers. You can see that there's application in these things for, 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 for all of us, can't you? But perhaps especially for the young people. So, Listen, if you're a teenager or if you're not, and if you're a little bit younger than a teenager or if you are a little bit older than a teenager, give me your attention for a moment. Um, We pray for you. I think you need to know that. Because the adult Christians who are in the room here, we know that that life for you as a teenager or either side of that, a vase either side of that, we know that, that for you, your life is tough often. And we know that you're, you're discovering at a, a young age that people can be cruel. And you're seeing, aren't you, that so much of this world is set up to try and entice you into rebellion. So much your nature and this society and your friends and sometimes your schooling is set up to entice you into rebellion against God and against you know, rebellion against your parents, rebellion against your church. But you need to understand that God is good. And you've got to see, don't you? That in this portion of Scripture, what is God giving you? In Jesus, he is giving you an example of God-honoring behavior in youth. And it's an example for you as a young person to follow. And what I want to do is I want to just give you two words that begin with S that you can take as a young person and put in your back pocket and go home and you can think about. So for the first word, look at verse 51 with me. You'll see the word. The word is... Submission. Isn't it? It's not a dirty word. Look at it. What happens? Jesus, a young person. So after all of this and the stress, he he goes back to Nazareth and he lives with his mom and dad for the, the coming years. And what's emphasized? Do you know what he did? 
He lived obeying the fifth commandment. He, he lived honoring his mum and his dad. And everyone's amazed at that. Aren't we? As a teenager, he listened and obeyed his, his parents. So we've got submission. The second word. The second word is the word study. Because I do think these are solemn things. I, I do think this is serious. And, and you have to accept, the young people in the room, that you are not a child anymore. The kids have gone out. It leaves us. And there's, there's a lot of you who have, or some of you, who have recently hit and passed the age that the Jews would look at you and see that you are responsible before God. Responsible as a sinner. Responsible before him. And so hopefully you see, even this morning and from this text, that you need to perhaps take spiritual things much more seriously. And what do you see? You see that you can't earn God's favor. You can't merit God's favor. What do you need to do? Even in your youth, you need to run and flee to Jesus for the righteousness that Jesus Christ alone can provide for you. And then when you've done that, what do you do? You, you follow his example here. And what is that? It's an example of someone who delighted in his God, delighted in God's word. And he did that even in his youth. So we see Jesus' development. Second of all, we see Jesus' delight. <clears throat> the last thing, we see Jesus' disclosure. Jesus' disclosure. Um, okay, what were your first ever words? Did your mum, did your dad, did they notice that they were your first words and have they subsequently told you what your first words were? Would you be able to tell me? On the way out the door, you're going to shake my hand and you're going to, I'm sure you're going to tell me what your, your first ever words were. I'll tell you mine, because they weren't very profound at all. So my first words were, all done. So I sat there, apparently very young, thankfully not like six or seven, very young, being fed, and I announced to the room halfway through, <laughs> I'm all done. No more. Well, Despite the fact that our Lord here is 12 years old, and he's obviously spoken a lot before this point, uh, it is interesting, isn't it, to realize that what we come to next, these are Jesus' first recorded words in all of the Bible. These are the first words that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, the first words that he spoke, and therefore are supposed to grab your attention. So, so come on, where were we? What, where were we? What was the scene? <laughs> Mary and Joseph have just <laughs> discovered uh, Jesus, and in the, the stress of this, what happens is that Mary begins to rebuke him. What I'm guessing, speculating that she does what you do with a 12-year-old, and I think she probably takes him aside, okay? But she rebukes Jesus, for, for, for staying deliberately, consciously staying behind. 
And that sets up, that opens the way for Jesus, the first ever words recorded in Scripture. Will you again look at them with me? Look at verse 48 and 49. 48, 49. So his mum, his mother says to him, Son, why have you done this? Why have you treated us so? And he says to them, Why were you looking for me? And here we go. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? First words, Jesus. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, you have to be honest with me as you sit here. And if you're still with me, what do you think of those as the first words of Jesus in the incarnation? Honestly, what, do you not know that I need to be in my, uh, must be in my father's house? What do you think? Are you sitting there thinking, oh, it's a little bit anticlimactic? I wanted a little bit more thunder and lightning and, and you know, did you not know that I had to be my... Oh, no, no. If we just, if you just, if you just linger on it a second, you see a couple of things that are mighty and beautiful. Really, you do. Because look at it again. Don't you see in that phrase an awareness, an amazing self-awareness of Jesus' identity? See, the problem that we have is that that language seems really familiar to us, doesn't it? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? That seems really familiar. But what we have to understand is no one had ever said anything like this before. Do you appreciate that? So Moses had never said anything like this. Abraham had never said anything like this. None of the prophets had ever said anything like this before. I mean, just look at it. Okay, he speaks about, uh, he calls God his, what is it, his father. So what do you see there? You see, of course, there is a, there's a great intimacy. He's 12. And yet, there's great intimacy. Father, that's fine. But look at the unique claim. Look at the unique claim. Because he's not saying, I'm in our father's house. Look at him, 12 years old. And he's saying, this is my father's house. Isn't it stunning? We see here at a tender age of 12, just as a young lad, Jesus is aware that he has a special relationship with, with God as his father, special, just a tender, before he's even a teenager. Jesus knows himself to be the son. So we see an awareness of identity. But the second thing, if you look at that, that phrase, first words, don't you also see an awareness of his mission? Because if we look down, look at verse 48. Is there not a word that we could really skip over very easily? It's a word that plays an important role in Luke's gospel. When Luke is dealing with Jesus' mission, he uses this word. Now, if you look at it, I'll read it. What does he say? Did you not know that I... Did you not know that I must be here? Isn't that remarkable? Do you you recognize the sense of obligation that Jesus had at the age of 12 years old? The sense of feeling, I have to be here. I need to, I must be here. Indeed, in the original language, the word house isn't there. Like that's assumed by the context 
by most of the translations. And so a lot of people actually translated like this. Jesus, age 12, saying, I must be about my father's business. Either I must be here in my father's house or I must, I have to be. You don't understand, mom. I have to be about my father's business. And and either way, whichever translation we, we go with, you get the idea. It's not just that he recognizes that he is the son. Jesus at the age of 12, he recognizes that he has a God-given mission to fulfill. When God is discussed, when salvation is debated and discussed, he, as the son, has to be there. And he recognizes it before he's even a teenager. Now, these are, these are heavy things, they're weighty matters, but we have to close, I know. How do we close the sermon? Like, I, I, I do think what we could do is consider how people respond to this, especially if you're watching on, online, in here, and you're, you're not born again, you're, you're not trusting in Christ Jesus. I think you have to consider how do you respond to it. Maybe you notice in the text how Mary responds to these things. Do you? Look at verse 50 and 51. Isn't it something she doesn't get it? Like even she's had Gabriel's words and all that sort of stuff going on here. And Mary, you know, when it comes to Jesus' mission and identity, she the penny doesn't quite drop. She doesn't quite get it. But what does she do? Look at it. She says she takes this. And she treasured these things up in her heart. And if you are not a Christian in this room, I implore you to do just that, to do with these things as you would do with treasure. What would you do with it? Keep these things safe in here. And then you take it out often and you ponder and you consider and you behold these things. And I would honestly implore you, if you're not a Christian, to ask God for help. Ask God to help you to understand Jesus' identity, his mission, ask him that you might understand the gospel. We, we could end like that, couldn't we? How do we respond? I, I just want to do this. I end with this. I just want to remind you of the setting. Where are they? Yep, they're in Jerusalem. They're in the temple. Why? It's a feast. They've gone up for the... But I'm asking you, which feast is it? It's the Passover. Doesn't that change everything? Do you understand for the the whole of the last week, and as he sits at the rabbi's feet, Jesus hasn't just been hearing about Scripture generally. He hasn't just been asking questions generally. Don't you see the picture? Twelve-year-old. Oh, asking questions, learning, asking questions, watching, asking questions about a lamb. The little Jesus, 12 years old, before he's a teenager, asking questions about a lamb whose blood was shed, about a lamb whose blood was administered, about a lamb whose blood saved a people from the coming judgment of God. Don't you see it? Isn't that important? a 12-year-old maturing and understanding, listening, learning. Don't you think that the Lord Jesus Christ looked at this and understood something more of what he was being called by God to do and for our salvation? 
when we look at this portion of Scripture, should it not bring forth from the church of Jesus Christ praise? Why? Because as a little boy, he didn't shrink back. Even as a 12-year-old, he didn't shrink back from this. As a 12-year-old, he embraced this mission out of love for his father and out of love for you. Doesn't it bring forth praise? Because Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, his blood was spilt. And it was spilt to purchase the church. He did this, friends, for our salvation. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, as we read of your earthly life and the the early years, and as we are given a window into your youth, we are amazed at the the condensation. We're amazed at the, the depths that you plummeted. We are amazed by your humiliation that you willingly embraced, that you took to yourself limitations. You took to yourself a human mind because it was a necessary thing for our salvation. Lord, we as a church praise you for this. We praise you for your perfection, your sinless representative life. We praise you that you became the true Passover lamb for us. And Lord, please hear the praises of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.